The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 4 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. You who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you, so that he may discipline yourself, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nylanthe. Let me add my greeting to uh, those earlier from Lisa, a special greeting to the family and friends who have joined us for uh, Isla's baptism this morning. It's a joy and a pleasure to welcome you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. And to those of you who are here for the first time, the same to you and to those who are with us uh, remotely, wherever you are. We trust that by the power of the Spirit, he is building a bond between us irrespective of our proximity because of the challenges that we continue to face, because of travels. It's good to know that time and space are no final barrier to the work of God's Spirit in our midst. This morning we come to the final look at Peter's little letter, First Peter. Why don't we pray together as we begin? Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds, not only to hear and understand your word, but to fall more deeply in love with you and to follow you in great confidence and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was somewhat to my surprise my father, who volunteered to drive me the nine hours to college when I was entering as a freshman. Mom stayed at home in Birmingham, Alabama with my younger sister. When the day arrived, it was a 
typical day in Birmingham in August, a hot southern day. We loaded up the car and made our way up Interstate 85. I don't remember feeling particularly anxious. It was a long time ago, though, and memories distort uh, things. But I don't remember feeling particularly anxious about the change, the big life transition. We came to campus, moved a few things into my room, and then my dad, rather formally, shook my hand, got in the car, and headed back down the road home to Birmingham. I don't think I was expecting a speech from him, but I wondered if he wouldn't have a few last warning words for me. He didn't deliver one, and in the end, I wasn't all that surprised. Fast forward some 48 years. Now it feels like I am the one who is faced with the challenge of giving a speech as I stand at the bedside of my dying father. I wanted to apologize to him for my foolishness and self-centeredness. I wanted to convey my deep respect that had only grown through the years. And I wanted to thank him for his constancy, his faithfulness, his belief in Christ, and his belief in me. Not all of us get the opportunity to say those things. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity, and I remember very clearly swallowing hard and mustering the courage to try to say some of those things. When you're in that moment, you know that it is unique. You know that it's important, and you don't want to mess it up. Well, the same, this morning we come to a similar moment in this little letter in 1 Peter. The challenge for the apostle is to bring his conviction about the gospel with all of its life-changing power and impact that it had had in his own story. He wants to bring that to bear on these congregations that are facing stiff opposition. He has the moment. It's important. He might not get to say these words again. He wants to get it right. Peter knew their trials, and he was seeking to help them lift their embattled heads, so to see their suffering from a different perspective, to see it through the lens of Jesus Christ, the one who had risen from the dead, the one who had promised never to leave them or forsake them. And he writes as one who himself has participated in that suffering. You might have noticed that he writes from Babylon, he says, which at this time, around 64 AD, was a code word for Rome. Babylon was a symbol of exile in Christian thought. For just as Babylon had taken Judah into exile in 587 B.C., and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So now Rome in 64 AD was persecuting Christians. And in 70 AD, just six years hence, would destroy the second temple in Jerusalem that had been built after the return from exile. Christians were opposed to God. Christians were suffering wherever Rome placed its boot. And Peter wanted these churches to know that they had every reason in Jesus Christ, nevertheless, to stand firm. 
If you've been tracking with us through these five brief chapters, you'll, you'll remember that Peter doesn't offer glib assurances. This is not Pollyanna theology, where if you just say the right prayer or clap your hands or click your heels together, suddenly you'll be in Kansas again. No. He doesn't offer those glib assurances. Instead, he names the very real hardships that they are enduring. But he asks them to frame them within the story of the one who died and rose and ascended and who reigns. And as he closes this letter, he addresses first those who are leaders in these churches, calling them to lead not out of any hope of financial gain or power, but out of a genuine desire to be shepherds of the flock of God. Nylanthe started reading just after that section. You'll remember we looked at the first section of this chapter a little bit out of sequence because we were ordaining our class of elders and deacons a few weeks ago. But given the moment, what is surprising here is that Peter then turns his attention to younger men. After instructing the older men to watch out for pride and avarice and greed, he tells the younger men, in the same way, be subject to those who are older. And then to both young and old, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. I'm intrigued by this, especially since it comes in these last important words of this letter. Perhaps there's always been tension between generations. There's always a need for humility between generations, the older and the younger. After all, haven't there always been prodigal sons who dismissed their fathers as old fuddy-duddies? Haven't there always been Absaloms who wanted to overthrow their King David fathers and take the seat of power and influence? Yes, true enough. But in ancient cultures, and in our own culture until not that long ago, there was a shared understanding of the respect that was owed to the older generation. Your days, that your days may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. In our world, we have turned this wisdom upside down. The youth culture has been the dominant culture these last 50 years or so, and politicians and the entertainment industry and the advertising industry, well, they know that. They know that's where the money is. The politicians know that that's where the votes are. Sociologists now speak of distinctions between generations, making, in my mind, overly broad differentiations between the boomers and the builders and the Gen Xers and the Gen Zers and the millennials, each one supposedly differing from the others. What does that do except encourage a further distancing between us, especially between parents and children? And as a result, the young often look at the old elderly or the older ones as being out of touch or irrelevant. My own children have looked at me on occasion and said, okay, boomer. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older ones among us either grumble about how the world is going to the dogs 
or else we assume that in a day of fast-changing technology, we really have nothing very much worth offering to those who are coming along after us. But my intrigue about this text remains. Why does Peter think this generational disconnect is so threatening to the health of these young churches, so threatening that he includes this admonition to the young and the old in his closing paragraphs? Well, Peter isn't simply making a nice gesture toward us old folks. Something much more urgent is at stake for him. Look at verse 8. We discover there the reason. He writes, like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, says Peter, standing firm in your faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same challenges, undergoing the same suffering. This image puts me in mind of a National Geographic special, you know, that takes place on the plains of Kenya's Maasai Mara or the Serengeti of neighboring Tanzania. Lions on the prowl, stalking the wildebeest or the Cape buffalo or the, the Tommy gazelles, looking for the straggler, the weak one, the isolated one, the vulnerable young, looking for an opportunity for dinner. Satan is on the prowl. To mention that word in a sophisticated place and time and congregation. Is there room in your worldview for a power at work in the world that is opposed to God's purposes? Is there room in your worldview for this force that is both subtler and more powerful than any political foe or any economic explanation of the world's ills or any psychological theory? It's not an either or, mind you, but force at work that is working actively for our spiritual Desolution. We've been reading Lewis's Great Divorce on Wednesday evenings during Lent. Here's a shameless plug since Lisa didn't give you that in her announcements this morning. This coming Wednesday is the grand finale, Act 5, featuring two of our high schoolers in the key roles and our resident staff Oscar nominee, Quinn Fox. Do you want to take a bow, Quinn? anticipatory bow. We'll give you the Oscar on Wednesday night, but you should come. Six o'clock for dinner, 6.30 to 7.30 for the fun. But remember Lewis's other imaginative exploration of the obstacles to Christian discipleship called the Screwtape Letters. The senior devil, Screwtape, writes to his nephew, Wormwood, one generation to the next, exhorting him since we cannot deceive the whole human race, writes Screwtape, it is most important to cut every generation off from all others. Curious. Screwtape insists that he doesn't want one generation learning from another. 
Obviously, he doesn't take his own advice. He's writing this to the next generation. But then Satan never takes his own advice. He is the lying prince. Why would Screwtape insist on this strategy of divide and conquer? It's because he knows the power of one generation of faith bonding with the next. Formation in faith best takes place when the generations are together seeking the Lord. Christian Smith, the Notre Dame sociologist who has led the most thorough longitudinal study of faith formation in teenagers and young adults, has confirmed what the scriptures have always known. The most important factor influencing faith in the younger generation is the presence of significant older adults in their lives. Parents, chief among them, modeling day in and day out with integrity, both the commitment and the practice of the Christian faith, even when that integrity requires us to ask forgiveness from our spouses or our children or they from us. They're the most important without question. And in the baptism this morning, Borislava and Nicholas committed to rearing Isla to know and to love the Lord, a recognition of the importance and influence of parents seeking Christ on behalf of their children. But second to parents are other adults and not necessarily of the same age group as the parents, but nevertheless older who are also willing to build relationship with younger members. So Kristen and Kyle, the youth volunteers and Sunday school teachers and Jill and Melanie and nursery workers, these and others are essential in transmitting the faith to our younger ones. The young adults that Betsy and I often had around our dining room table as our children were growing up, college students, graduate students, the other young adults, they helped demonstrate to our kids that Christian faith wasn't just some weird thing that their dad believed because he had a job in the church. All of us, in fact, every single one of us has a part to play in transmitting the faith. Getting to know younger folk in our congregation, inviting young adults to a meal, praying for the younger ones and their families, perhaps volunteering to share in a mission project or asking staff how we can be helpful. We who are older, who might have a little bit more time, need to take the initiative, even when we wonder or fear that we might not have much to offer. We have a good legacy here at MPC. I've been struck just a week or so ago by the length, the tenure of those teaching our third graders. Do you remember when we handed out Bibles and Quinn called them by name and said how long they've been teaching? Barbara Mitchell here teaches young girls. Greg Gocknauer at the early service, our young men. We have a strong legacy that we can build upon. But post-COVID, we have been pulled apart and we need to be intentional about strengthening the bond between young and old, between old-timer and newcomer. When I think about what I have learned 
from those who are older in the faith than I was, more mature in the faith. It is a long list of embarrassing riches. I was brought to faith and taught to pray by my elders. When I was diagnosed with cancer and Betsy was eight and a half months pregnant with our youngest, I had my whole perspective, my fears lifted, changed by a conversation with an older, more mature Christian who had suffered loss in his own life. I learned to be a pastor through an informal apprenticeship. I learned to be a better husband through the influence of those older and more mature than I. In each case, those more mature in Jesus Christ responded with grace and invitation. They came alongside in support and friendship. This friend is the secret sauce of the kingdom of God. The bond between believers, a bond that is so strong in Jesus Christ that it will not be undone, perhaps frayed, but not undone by disputes over the color of the carpet. What kind of tie the pastor wears on a Sunday morning? We have in Jesus Christ a bond that is stronger than all of those powers that would pull us apart. And we know that these generational connections are not guarantees. So many of our families are struggling, they're in pain, and all of us feel the challenge. And these generational connections are important not just because we want our children to walk with Christ, but Peter mentions the importance of these generational connections because they provide a strong weave to the fabric of our faithfulness in the world where young and old are together in relationships of humility and friendship, there is greater strength as we face the fears and the challenges of the uncertain days in which we live. It can even be hostile. We don't want there to be those who are staggering, those who are lingering, the weak and the vulnerable, who are going to be picked off. To live the Christian life together makes it possible, you see, to cast our anxieties and cares on the Lord in a way that we couldn't do when left to ourselves. It gives us an opportunity to know his love and care through the love of his people. It helps us to stand firm. And most importantly, in our life together, where those bonds are deep and strong and mature, where we are not embarrassed to speak to the spiritual needs one to another, we are offered the unique opportunity to reinterpret the suffering that inevitably comes to each one of us, to reinterpret that suffering so that we see it not according to the despair and chaos of the world around us, but through the lens of the resurrection and the promised restoration that is ours in Jesus Christ. To be able to say with full confidence, as Peter says, that the God of all grace in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. And so we end this little letter as we began with a confident declaration of the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ. 
In times of testing and doubt and fear, together we are invited to stand firm because in his great mercy, Christ has caused us, I know you have it memorized by now, chapter 1, to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that cannot perish or fade. I very much doubt that you saw the 1950s Humphrey Bogart movie, The Desperate Hours. But in that film, Bogart plays a robber on the run who in one final effort to avoid capture holds a family, mom, the dad, and a 10-year-old son, hostage in their own home as he tries to negotiate a deal with the police. And the tension of the plot rises as the hours drag on and sleep threatens finally to overcome Bogart's character. Bogart figures as long as he has one family member under his gun, the two, other will, the two others will not wander far. But finally, as he is alone with the father, he nods off, and the gun that he's holding in his hand slips out and for a moment rests on the couch beside him. The father of the family, not wanting to risk violence to his, his wife or son, takes advantage of that moment, reaches for the gun, empties it of its bullets, and then puts the gun right back where it was. Seconds later, Bogart awakens, stunned, surprised to find the gun not in his hand. He grabs it, looks around. All seems to be in order. He resumes his watch, but the dad calls his wife and son into the room and calmly says, you two walk out the door. But Bogart grabs the boy, holds the gun to his head. If you leave, I will shoot him. But the father knows something no one else, not even the criminal, knows. Calmly, he looks at his son and says, Come to me. The boy has a decision to make, doesn't he? What to trust? The gun at his head? Or the eyes and the heart of his dad? Bogart screams, don't you move. I will kill him. And that's where the movie ends. No, I'm just kidding. Should I tell you then? In the film's climax, the boy wrests himself from the gunman's grip and runs to his father's arms as the gun goes click, click, click. All of us, all of us live under threat in this broken and desperate world. The threat differs by degrees, circumstances, and situations, of course. And all of us know that there will come a day that will lead to our own end in this world. But listen, the Father knows something we don't. In Jesus Christ, the evil one who is looking for someone to devour has been undone. 
the threat of death has been emptied of its finality. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Father has called Satan's bluff. And it is for us to know the gaze of the Father, to know his heart, to trust the eyes and the heart of the Father, so to take refuge in his arms and to walk each day, not under threat, but with a lightness of step that bears witness to the living hope that we know in Jesus Christ. Friends, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Are you aware as, as you bow your heads of a, of a stronghold of fear in your life? Perhaps for yourself or for a family member or a friend? Are you tempted to anxiety? Would you invite the Holy Spirit in this very moment to intervene? Dare you speak a word of invitation to the Lord that he would address you? Father, you know what we do not. You have experienced every grief and loss that is ours to know. And yet you know one thing more, that seated on your right hand is the glorious one, the one who has overcome every obstacle, even death, that could come against us. How grateful we are to have heard your invitation. And in whatever stumbling and halting ways we have about us, we have tried to respond. And it has been enough for you. All day long, you hold out your hands to us. This morning, you hold your hands out to us in loving invitation. Look into my eyes. Trust me. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. Help us to cast our cares upon you, all of our anxieties. Help us to walk with that lightness of step that betokens our trust, our confidence in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.